Michelle, thanks so much for joining Speaking of Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta. And today we welcome Dr. Nina Champagne, who is a clinical associate professor and division chief of pediatric genetics at the Medical University of South Carolina. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So this conversation could go for hours, probably based on our pre-interview with you. We had so many things that just every time we thought we were about ready to start the show, there was another question that popped up. So I'm really excited to share this conversation. So I'm going to start by saying, first of all, you said that there are, you're one of two uh, biochemical geneticists in the state of South Carolina. And yet you formed this interest when you were in ninth grade. So I would love to just hear what drove you to, you know, go on this path and become a, a doctor doing amazing work in such a small field that you're hoping does expand. Um, absolutely. I mean, it's been a, an amazing journey. So starting, I guess, in my first exposure to genetics and biology in the ninth grade, we used to have those Punnett squares where we would look at and draw out, you know, the potential um, uh, risks for having a, a different genetic condition. And it sparked my interest from the outset. It was it's also in the time where there was a lot of discussion around sequencing the whole genome. And so to me, that was just absolutely fascinating that we could, you know, um, unravel the code that makes us who we are and, and different in different ways. And so um, I started out my career knowing that I wanted to go into genetics, but never really understanding what the different avenues that could be um, explored within this field. And so when I was in college, I had the privilege of just going around and meeting with every different discipline. So I met with a medical geneticist and kind of got his perspective. I met with a genetic counselor, um, got their perspective, met with different people in both research and diagnostic labs, and then really just, you know, landed on, um, I'm a people person. And so it seemed like a good fit for me in terms of my interest in genetics to go into that field. Um, and it was, I remember distinctly meeting with the uh, geneticist at that time, and he told me I'd be an old lady by the time I was done. So that always stuck with me. And at that time, being in my early 30s did seem like it was going to be a long time until, but I completed all of my training in pediatrics and then subsequently in genetics. And so, you know, have never looked back or uh, regretted any of the, the journey. It's just a constant learning experience. That's so inspiring, Dr. Champagne. As I was telling you earlier, there's unfortunately I tend to meet a lot of physicians who are, aren't as uh, fortunate as you and, and uh, have become really beat up and burnt out by the whole clinical process. And, uh, and I find it uh, inspiring the way in which you came into the field has probably been uh, such a major reason for your continuing to find joy in it. Um, so, you know, I wonder if you have any more words of inspiration along those lines of, you know, other people listening to the show, uh, folks that might be getting thinking about whether to go into this field. What is it about this that makes it so interesting, and uh, what's the, uh, the 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 reward for them in terms of uh, you know meaning that they're going to find at the end of the journey? Um, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think you know I share you know some of the struggles of the day to day of being a, a busy clinician. Um, but, you know, I, I can say, you know, I get up every morning and even though I face, you know, a challenging day, 
I always think about my patients and their families and kind of what they're going through and know that, you know, if they can do what they're doing, then I can continue and do what I'm doing and make sure that I'm there for them. Um, I think a really good example, and, and we talked about kind of just sharing, you know, what the reality of genetics means, you know, today in the, in the 21st century, but, you know, one of my areas of, um, experience and expertise and passions is in newborn screening. And so that's a space that I've been in for um, over uh, 12 years. And so, you know, one uh, example of that really highlights that is, you know, a new condition that was um, uh, added to the newborn screening. So every baby in South Carolina, every baby in the U.S. is screened for a subset of conditions that otherwise would not be picked up until they had some, you know, uh, symptom or uh, 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 medical crisis. And so in um, 2021, exactly a year ago, we added two different conditions. One is Pompeii and one is um, mucopolysaccharidosis type one, which is a, a mouthful, but they're both conditions where there's additional storage within um, certain cells of the body that over time accumulate and they can have a number of health issues. So um, we were able to diagnose three different babies within our first year with Pompe disease, which again, those individuals without detection would have storage material in their heart and um, do not survive past the first year of life. But when we pick them up, you know, through newborn screening, we can um, start treatment with life-saving enzyme replacement therapy. Um, and one of our babies, we were able to diagnose her and start her on treatment within, you know, two weeks of age. And so she really, you know, has done spectacular in terms of her response. And she's, you know, a, a normal uh, four month old that, you know, otherwise to look at your, you wouldn't know that she has this potentially deadly disease that again, if we hadn't detected and uh, intervened would have, you know, had a different outcome. Is that something that now she'll receive that treatment for the duration of her life? Does she have a normal life expectancy with that or is it correcting it completely? And, and that's, a, that's a great question. Um, a lot of these treatments are not cures. And so it is a lifelong commitment, um, but it certainly has changed the quality of life and the natural history for both the patients and the families. And so it depends on the condition and kind of how successful we are, but we're in an age of genetics and genetic um, research where there are just so many potential therapies, um, you know, including gene therapy that are on the horizon and may, you know, completely change the landscape for even, you know, somebody who's on long-term treatment. It's, I just find that so profound, uh, Dr. Champagne, as you were saying, this is one of the newest specialties. Uh, it may feel to you like it's still going very slow, but just as a, as a listener, um, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying, and now, not only do you have a way to screen for these conditions, you also have interventions for these conditions, and in some cases, you've actually been able to make the screening throughout the state. So that is a, a remarkable story of access. Uh, I, I guess a question that I have related to that is that, is that state by state? So South Carolina has now added these two, but other states have to make a decision on their on their own? Correct. Um, so there is a federal committee that helps um, uh, look at different conditions that have been nominated to be added. And it may be a parent, it could be a laboratory researcher that you know has experience with a certain condition and they think that the condition's ready um, in terms of ease of testing, 
um, availability of treatment and kind of the success for treatment. Um, so that's a constantly um, growing list of conditions that you know people are interested in potentially adding. Um, in South Carolina, we're up to 55 different com conditions, but every state has different resources allocated and capabilities. And so, you know, compared to my home state of Texas, you know, they have a very large population, they have a very large lab. And so sometimes adding tests is a little bit easier for them compared to a smaller state like South Carolina um, because of, you know, staffing resources, equipment. So there are some, you know, nuances in all of that process, but again, there are federal agencies, including the CDC, um, Association of Public Health Laboratories that help try to streamline that whole process so that there's, you know, equity uh, amongst, you know, the different states. But again, as more conditions get added, it becomes a little bit harder to, to keep up. So, you know, in my area, you know, it may be a little bit different in Georgia or North Carolina. Um, and so, you know, trying to make sure that we are all, you know, screening for the same things is something that we're, we strive for. It's also interesting because you told us before that, you know, you can add these things and it can be a process to add them. But you said that there's also the interesting situation of, you know, there's the human aspect. Some people want to know and some people don't want to know. So just because just because you can doesn't mean you always will. And right. so for you as somebody, you know, how do you help people determine what really is um, necessary and possible? And how do you avoid people from looking at you like you're a wizard who just because you find this means that you can necessarily correct it because that that's not the case either. So how do you balance that? It's a fine line I, to walk. Um, absolutely. And I, I think, I mean, I think we have to separate a little bit kind of the different situations. So, um, you know, to our previous point about newborn screening, that's why it's so carefully vetted, you know, at the federal level to really understand kind of the public benefits of early diagnosis and treatment and trying to make sure that the conditions that are selected are ones that have a meaningful impact and to try to pri prioritize the different conditions. Um, on the other side, when we see, at least in our clinic, we have you know, a different uh, variety of people who come to us that maybe have um, developmental delays or um, you know, uh, birth defects, autism, every, you know, family comes in, you know, with a different perspective in terms of where they are in the process of trying to find answers. And so part of, you know, our role as genetics providers is to walk them through what, you know, the benefits and the risks and the limitations of genetic testing can provide to them in their, uh, you know, what we call diagnostic odyssey. And so everybody is at a different place in that odyssey. And some people, you know, are, are ready and, and interested in getting information. Others, you know, prefer to just kind of watch and wait. Um, and again, it, everybody's um, preference is different. And I think as genetics providers, you know, we really strive to respect, you know, a patient's and family's wishes and where they are in that journey and just partner with them so that they can get the information that they need when they need it. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Champagne, one one thing that's ringing in my head as I was thinking about your last response when we were talking about the states and access, and you mentioned equity, and I said, whoa, okay, well, you know, we're talking genetics, 
And obviously that's linked to race and to culture, but we don't often talk about that. Now it's becoming more talked about, you know, in general, in society. So, so, uh, you know, is it kind of to be understood that, uh, that you're taking that into account when you're thinking about which populations to screen for, making sure that uh, all populations uh, have an uh, equitable access uh, to, to the testing? Uh, and how do you kind of, you know, uh, factor that into the equation in terms of uh, how, do you, how are you going to make sure uh, that populations that may be vulnerable are particularly able to get access to some of the, uh, the screening and the interventions that you're talking about? I mean, that's a fantastic question and something that we struggle with in terms of equity. Um, you know, in terms of the public health initiative, again, it, it's across the board. Anyone who's born in, you know, any state is going to get that um, screen, you know, which we think is a positive. I think some of the challenges um, that may come that there may be a discrepancy in terms of access is, you know, in types of insurance that, you know, people may have. Um, their access to different providers, specialists who can provide the appropriate follow-up. Um, and we talked a little bit about, you know, that just getting the genetic test approved, um, you know, can be a process, again, that could be different depending on a person's socioeconomic status. And then lastly, you know, for some of these, and this is something that we have to navigate for um, families and parents, and it is different from state to state, is the ability to access the treatment. So these treatments, you know, not only are specialized, but they can be very costly. And so that's another point where we do um, certainly find uh, areas where there could be a, a difficulty in access. I will say a lot of the um, rare disease um, companies, uh, pharmaceutical companies do make a, a, a big effort to make sure that people have access to the drug that they need or the treatment that they need. But there certainly are a lot of um, barriers that we identify along the way in trying to make sure that we're able to provide, you know, the appropriate services. How fortunate are the people that have access to you that are living in South Carolina, and then you have this wonderful medical center and that's able to get people this, this level of service. And I, again, I wonder for, uh, in terms of vulnerability and equity, uh, those people that maybe don't have access to such a health system, uh, what is it that they can do? Uh, and, and I know that the options there may also be limited, but I think our audience will really appreciate just hearing you help them think through it. Anyone in our audience that may be you know, a parent of a newborn or about to deliver or even a caregiver, what is it that you would want them to know about uh, trying to help them, them uh, themselves or their patients get access to this kind of uh, testing? Um, absolutely. So um, in my experience, parents and families are, are fairly savvy. Um, you know, the internet or, um, you know, online resources have certainly expanded and try to ensure that people have access to, um, you know, the different uh, networks of providers that are available. Um, in the newborn screening space, for instance, there is a website called Babies First Test. Um, it's a federally sponsored um, website and it actually logs um, state by state um, what the different conditions are, you know, who the providers are, gives fact sheets. Um, so it really serves as a clearinghouse um, for people to access information um, specifically about newborn screening. 
Uh, beyond that, there are actually regional genetics groups. And so I actually, I didn't mention this, but I'm the president of the Southeastern Regional Genetics Group, which encompasses um, the states all the way from Louisiana um, over to North Carolina and Florida. Um, but there are seven different um, genetics groups. And so each website has kind of their own regional network. So patients can log in or providers can log in and see what providers are in their area and how to access them for services. Um, so those are two, you know, again, federally funded uh, resources that allow for people to at least see what is in their area. I do know, um, again, you know, because there are not many of us, there are some states that don't have a biochemical geneticist. And so they have to, um, you know, work with their surrounding states in order to make sure that they have adequate access and coverage. Um, but, you know, those resources at least allow providers and patients to see where those providers are and um, in some cases what their level of expertise is or maybe um, specialty areas and, and, and uh, access from that point. As people start this journey on genetics overall, what is the message that you would tell to people in general who were doing that patients and then the message that you would give to doctors just beginning this journey as a geneticist? Oh, that's, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I think, you know, people, although we're, we're getting into a, an age, I think because there is so much publicity around direct to consumer testing, you know, you have a lot of um, advertisements for things like 23andMe and Ancestry.com and people, you know, are interested in that. Um, so I think it's highlighted, you know, the role that genetics can play, um, you know, for an individual and their health. Um, and I think, you know, just the awareness that, you know, there is a specialty um, within medicine uh, and that there are a variety of genetic providers that can help navigate that process, you know, when you are concerned um, either because of your family history or a current diagnosis or concern um, to make sure that we um, can help navigate that process for diagnosis and management. Um, so I think, you know, I think just recognizing that we are kind of a service that is slightly different and do specialize in this very unique area. Um, you know, certainly there are a lot of different providers that have that background. And for providers, you know, I think, you know, trying to ensure that through all um, sets of, you know, their training, that they get exposure and continuing medical education uh, about the ever-changing landscape of genetics, uh, not only in terms of, you know, uh, diagnosis and testing, but also these treatment options. Um, and even those that don't have treatments, just being able to understand that a, an answer and a diagnosis, because I hear that a lot. So you, you can't change your genes. So, you know, you, you get a diagnosis, you know, wh what can you do about it? you know, a lot of it is around kind of that anticipation and that healthcare roadmap that you can now provide a person in a family based on that information and even putting them in contact with other um, individuals that have the same condition so that they can use them as a, a social support. So there's a lot of benefits, again, from testing that, you know, people I think should be aware of. Thank you so much. This was fascinating. I learned so much. <laughs> It was a pleasure. And I, like I said, I could, I could go on and on because I absolutely love what I do. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here.
And thank you all for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.